Hi, this is Aaron McCluskey, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome back. Hey, welcome to you too. And I'm glad everybody has survived my voice last week. Yeah, you know, you definitely had a Barry White thing going on, but we only got 17 emails of complaint about you. No, no, of course. Oh, no, good. Nobody complained. And uh, and I'm, I'm glad to have uh, you here to do some of the heavy lifting this time. So it's oh, yeah. not all no. on my plate. Yeah. They don't tell you when you have kids, but if you, uh, I know this is the cinematography podcast and uh, not the child rearing podcast, but as soon as you have kids and you put them in school, uh, they're going to come home with colds and you're just going to be sick all the time. That's just life. And in this era, what that means is you're going to be testing yourself for COVID all the time. It is, it is a reality of, of the days we are living oh in. Oh my God. Hey, who is on the show today? I could not be more excited. It is Aaron McCliskey. The DP of Talk to Me, which is definitely my favorite movie that I have seen this year, and uh, wow. it's uh, yeah, it's you've been talking it up for weeks. So yeah, that's that's great. I, I love the movie. I loved our conversation. He talks about and gives really good advice to uh, how to be bold when you're making a movie and you don't have infinite resources and infinite days to shoot. How to how to have some sack. How to make bold, cool choices because that movie is it's full an interesting of that. turn of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting turn of phrase. Have some sack. <laughs> yeah. I I think it's a it's a great movie. I think it's great looking. I'm really impressed with everything that they did. And uh, it's one of those cases where I went and saw a movie and then reached out to the DP on social media and they reached back. So it was much like the hand in Talk to Me, Aaron reached back. Good times. So, uh, yeah. so Ilya, what is our close focus today? And now, close focus. So for a close focus today, I thought we'd talk about the Union Solidarity Coalition, which is a group of people who got together during the 2023 WGA strike. So just in the last couple of months and watching people come out and uh, join the picket lines, they felt inspired and they wanted to do something to take action and create unity. And so what they've done is created a charity auction and have gotten a lot of celebrities and uh, people of note. It's to benefit co-workers of the industry unions who are out of work right now and have been losing their health insurance. Mm. And so they are directing financial support to crew members specifically. And, you know, because it's really crew members who are really getting the short end of the stick right now oh because crew is not striking. But there's very little crew work to go around. And crew is the casualty. Crew makes far less money than the, you know, everyone below the line is making far less money than people above the line in general. Maybe not exclusively, but quite often. And when there isn't a lot of work for anyone above the line, there's no one working below the line either. So what happens is, is that there's these different cycles of strife and contract negotiations. And IATSE had theirs, you know, uh, a while back. And sometimes actors and writers and editors and other people come out to support various different unions, depending on what what the strike mm -hmm. might be. And there is a, 
lot of solidarity, but usually as a whole, you don't have like IATSE right now standing up and saying all IATSE members are also on strike. They want IATSE members to work because, uh, you know, if they can work, if there is something they can work because they have to make a living. But at the same time, you know, there's a ton of IATSE that is out there right now on the picket line with the WGA, with the actors, and they are doing everything they can to try to uh, convince the studios that they need to listen to the demands, sign a deal and put everyone back to work. So the Union Solidarity Coalition, they've come up with this really, really cool auction, and they've got a lot of uh, a lot of great people to put forward random, bizarre, fun things. Like if you would like to have dinner with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, you can do that right now. And the winning bid is ten thousand two hundred dollars. Wow. Uh, for also about five thousand one hundred dollars, you could be in the lead on bids for having Lena Dunham paint a mural in your home. And, mm. and what's really fun about this is that a lot of the celebrities and other people are uh, on, on social media to paint a mural of my home. That's the entirety of the outside of my house. Only one color. That's like, that's a bargain, right? <laughs> that would be a bargain if you were trying to get Lena Dunham to paint your house. But I have a feeling it's probably limited to like a 24 by 36 sort of like, you know, size or something. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure. Lena Dunham's too but, uh, smart to, to fall for my ruse. <laughs> What's what's quite fun, though, is that all of the celebrity memes that have come out of this, like uh, Natasha Lyonne posted that she would love to bid on refinishing a bedside table with David Lynch and that Mm. she would bid on that all day long. And there's been a whole lot of other people who've put forward these like, you know, uh, these wishful thinking, uh, you know, memes of like what they wish they could bid on to have happen. Because like Adam Scott, currently, if you got you know, if you want to be in the lead, $2,000 will walk your dog in Los Angeles for an hour. So if you'd like to have a celebrity walk your dog, Adam mm. Scott is volunteering to do it. And all the money that they raise is going to go to support crew people. So I think it's really cool. You can, uh, we'll put links to this in the show notes. I, 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 I want to go boating right with Werner Herzog. Do you think Werner Herzog would let us go boating with him? You could certainly make a meme about it. And I'm pretty yeah. sure that you get a lot of laughs and support and applause. So yeah, it's an, it's an interesting kind of fun kooky thing that is going on. It's the Union Solidarity Coalition. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who, uh, who've signed up to do it. John Lithgow has uh, signed up to do, to do different things. Yeah. He's, he will paint a watercolor portrait of your dog. That's uh, and, and that's, then, that's uh, a good deal. Uh, John Lithgow is a really good painter. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's the real deal. He's not messing around. That's awesome. Uh, and there, there's all kinds of other things too. Like you can get on a, a zoom call with Nicole Kidman and Lulu Wang. I mean, there's like, <laughs> there's, there's just a lot of, I don't know like what random. I would say to them on a zoom call, but yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so there's a story currently in the Hollywood reporter, which kind of gives all the broad strokes and does have, uh, references. Some of the memes, the uh, varnish a cabinet with David Lynch for $10,000 benefits charity. That's a, uh, yeah. Natasha Leone's pick. I, I, she's like, if but, it was real, but that's, but that's a fake one, right? That's a fake one. Yes. Yeah. So, but, but the, yeah, you may see some of this on social media. There's people who are sharing this right now. It's kind of a thing. Awesome. Anyway. Awesome. So uh, let's get to our interview here with Aaron McCliskey. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. So I'm here. And by here, I mean from Los Angeles to Australia. Where, where in Australia are you? Currently, I am in Sydney, Sydney, Australia. Awesome. With Aaron McCliskey. And uh, anyone who listens to the show knows that I went and saw a little movie that didn't even get that much promotion over here, but it's been a huge hit called Talk to Me and couldn't stop talking about it. I went and saw it twice in the theater. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Aaron. 
Oh, absolutely my pleasure. It's so exciting to be able to speak about this little film that could, <laughs> that's, uh, that's gone from, you know, the suburbs of Adelaide to Hollywood. So it's super exciting. Holy crap. I brought two different groups of friends to see it. And, uh, you know, sneaking away to, to go to a movie in the theater is hard enough. But I was like, I saw it the first time and I've seen so many horror movies that I'm just a nerd to all the tricks. And so when I see one that actually like surprises, scares, makes me feel anything, I don't feel the tricks coming. I'm like, oh, I need to see it again to kind of dissect what y'all were doing. Uh -huh. Awesome. Awesome. So, so uh, give us the pitch. What's the story of Talk To Me? I guess the way that I've always spoken about it is, you know, it's a, it's a cautionary tale about a bunch of youth in the Adelaide suburbs who discover an embalmed hand. And when they start using it for the wrong things, the, the consequences become quite horrific. Um, so, I, you know, for me, it's always been a tale that sort of speaks to a horror genre audience, but also has a sort of a drama element um, mm. that, you know, is quite really powerful when it speaks to this idea of mental health uh, and sort of insidious thoughts and um, potentially, you know, drug culture in a youth context, um, because I feel like that those themes are strong um, in the film. So, but yeah. So how did the how did the film come to you? Like, uh, it's a very Australian movie. In fact, as an American, it probably took me about ten minutes each time I saw it to kind of just get used to the language, every, the vernacular everyone was speaking, because it's different enough <laughs> from from how we talk over here. But uh, how did it come to you? Because I'm I'm always uh, whenever we talk to somebody, you know, like Mandy Walker or whoever from Australia, it's like Australia has such a, an amazing and rich film industry that I think rivals our own, and it's interesting to me, even though we share a language like how few of your movies end up coming over here and so i don't really understand the machinations of of your your business i know it's very different the way it works over there yeah i mean i think it's you know firstly it's very exciting that uh, a small australian independent film has had such an international impact and you know whenever um australians are making films we're always mm -hmm. keeping the intention that it will be something that you know would translate overseas whilst maintaining like a strong Australian voice. So I think this project particularly for me was really exciting because you know it, it obviously has a genre element that speaks to a very very sort of strong audience. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think intentionally we wanted to make a film that was slightly location agnostic. Like I think if you realize if you look at the film it's not sort of sweeping Australian landscapes. It's very domestically driven. It's it's quite a small film. I mean, obviously the, the accent is, is hard to get around, but I think we did try to sort of keep things a little bit more international with the intention that hopefully it traveled overseas and that it would speak to a broader audience. So, I, you know, that was definitely something that we were conscious of. But the way that the project came to me was that uh, it was a, over a, a period of maybe six months where I had in hearing sort of murmurs that this script was floating around. Um, and I was actually on set shooting uh, Mr. In Between uh, season three. And I was speaking awesome, to awesome one of Awesome, awesome show. We'll, we'll definitely talk about Mr. In Between, but it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a great <laughs> series that uh, for oh, any, any of our American listeners, it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah. No, I, that, that was a, a great great series that I shot with Nash Edgerton, but I was speaking to a, one of the cast members who was actually doing a, a tape for this little film. And we sort of chatted and he said, man, this, there's this little horror film that's floating around and it's really exciting. So I reached out to my agent and tried to see if there was a way that we could get the script. And it was, it just so happened that concurrently the, the boys, the directors were looking for cinematographers. And I had done a short film called Nursery Rhymes 
directed by Tom Noakes, who's a very successful commercials director now. And they had seen that short film on Vimeo or, or something, and they actually had sought me out through social media. So I got oh, this wow. ping on my, yeah, I got a DM, uh, and uh, Danny had reached out, and he you know, was sort of curious to know what my availability was like, where I was based, and whether I'd be interested in, in looking at a project. And it just so happened to be this project that I was also look, you know, hearing murmurs about, and I and I said, of course, like you know, this this sounds great. Send send through the script. So as soon as I got my hands on the script and read it, I thought this is a fascinating project. I did a little bit of research on the Raka Raka, uh, which, to be completely honest, was slightly terrifying, um, just because you know they have quite a strong YouTube's you know his, history success. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you look at the work, and obviously they became famous sort of prior to a lot of, I guess you'd call like censorship laws and, and sort of, you know, things because their, their content was ultra violent. Um, yeah. And I think what was fascinating about them is they're sort of these grassroots self-taught, you know, filmmakers in their own right, telling these sort of like really ambitious stories, but like at a very, very sort of grassroots level, um, you know, they shot everything themselves, they edited everything themselves, yeah. like they, you know, and, but they went to such extremes. That's obviously what caught the, uh, the world's attention. Well, they did like um, a lot of like wrestling stuff too, right? Like yeah, that's, that's yeah. just real. It's like not, yeah, it's really not simulated. Real. <laughs> it yeah, reminds I, me, it I, reminds I, me a little bit. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary called not quite Hollywood, but it's about Australian exploitation movies of like the sixties yes. and seventies and how <laughs> those guys, like if they were going to drive a car through a house, the way they did it was they got a house and they drove a car through it. Like there was <laughs> no faking. Yeah. No. And I think that's the thing about the boys is that they have a, a, a sort of strong background in believing that, you know, if there's a way, if there's, there's a will, there's a way, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listening to sort of their stories of what they had done in the past, I think a lot of safety officers and producers were, <laughs> you know, uh, a little bit nervous. Um, and I, and, and, but look, I think the com early conversations with them were really intelligent. And, and obviously with the support of Causeway and, and, and what the producers were doing during development, trying to, you know, maintain a maturity uh, of storytelling, the boys really had strong ideas about how they wanted this to be cinematic. Because, you know, they, in some ways, they wanted to prove to the world that they are serious filmmakers and this was an opportunity to do so. And mm. that to me was quite motivating to sort of hear that they had this intention to sort of move away from YouTube style content, which they were very cognizant that it's for a brand, you know, it's for an audience that they understand. And the style of content that they do is very much sort of intellectualized. They understand exactly kind of what the people want. And but then this project was a departure from that. They never wanted to alienate their audience. So, you know, we always talked about the influence of the Raka Raka on this movie and when it was appropriate and when it wasn't. And so I think the process of getting to understand their intention and, and what this project was going to be in their minds made me a little bit more sort of confident that I, you know, that I could join this project because my ideas of the project was, you know, that it, that it needed to be elevated, it needed to be sophisticated, it needed to have a maturity because I'm not interested in, in sort of throwing away that opportunity because I think, you know, if we can make something special that can speak to a truth or, you know, that can connect with the audience. Like, that's what I do this for. So, you know, it was nice to hear them talk about it like that. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about Elevated, I know this is more of a writing thing than anything else. But what I appreciate about the movie is you see 
in the horror movies that give horror movies a bad rap, in my opinion, are the ones where you have a character doing something way dumber than what they would actually do or for reasons that don't make sense because you have an idea for a scene in which the monster or whatever is going to kill them. So you need to make them you need to put that make them vulnerable to it or whatever. And what I appreciated, especially the second time I saw it, was that you never have a character in this movie do the dumb thing. You have the character do the, the smartest thing that they would do. Or if it's not smart, it's something that they that there's a compel I don't want to spoil major plot points yeah. but there's like a compelling reason why the character is doing what they're doing that makes internal sense and even if as an audience member you're like no oh my god stop you know like you understand the reasoning for why that's happening from a cinematography standpoint when you say that you wanted to make sure that it was elevated like what did and does that mean to you yeah I guess you know like my history of sort of like I guess my school of cinematography has been slightly non-traditional. Um, you know, I, I didn't didn't do a you know a very traditional pathway to sort of get to where I'm at. And so to develop this idea of like an elevated approach of cinematography really means to me, you know, an integration of the visual sort of format in in mm. storytelling. So it's it's really about story first, obviously. Like we're all you know always. I never want to distract from sort of the story and performance, but Bringing another level and another layer of storytelling through cinematography is is how I always see it as elevated as sort of in, it's an intention is is present and helps aid the story. So for this film, it wasn't just about capturing the actors performing. It was about how does every frame compositionally from a lighting perspective, like how does the camera movement how does it all speak to a world and a language that is truthful to sort of the character's reality or the perspective in a scene? You know, it was just about really sort of being able to flex, you know, or, or sort mm. of like demonstrate how cinematography can really help elevate a tone. And I think that for me is what this genre is really helpful with because, you know, there's, there's so many ways we could have shot this film and we spoke about a lot of them, but I think we really landed on some, you know, really interesting concepts to apply to each scene to help tell the story and, and really get inside the sort of psychological breakdown of our, of our main character and, and also like understanding the rules of possession and how possession is perceived by the person who's possessed or the yeah. people who are witnessing the possession. You know, there's a, there was a lot of sort of like logic built around the camera and how the camera was helping the audience understand or, you know, or how we would withhold information to sort of bring up the fear and, and understand what is a jump scare and is it appropriate to apply in this scene or do we not want to do that? And I think those conversations were really exciting for me because that is ultimately how I feel we can elevate or, you know, you know, I hate to use the word, but bold, you know, like sometimes you're on set and you kind of, you get nervous that you you know you don't have options and that you feel like maybe we just need to get a you know a shot from here or a shot from there just because we're concerned about the edit and my background I actually started as an editor so I am constantly thinking about editing and have an opinion strong opinion about sort of how sequences will edit mm. and so when we are sort of discussing coverage ideas or sort of how we wanted to shoot you know certain scenes it was quite exciting to be bold and to sort of commit to because on a you know a very short schedule and a low budget film you don't have a lot of time and so the best way through it is to just make really clear decisions and, and be quite specific and that kind of was what was exciting about the project and the boys approach is that they mm -hmm. were often saying 
We don't need it, you know. We, we, we're good. This scene is told, you know. That frame says a thousand things and that frame also tells us what's happening. We don't need any more. And that was super refreshing because A, it satisfied a schedule constraint and B, it just was, you know, it felt bold on set. It felt like we were like going for it, you know. If we're going to give it a go, let's be really decisive about what our perspective is on this film. Can you give me an example of, of what you would have considered kind of like a bold choice to take? At the beginning of the film, we made a very bold decision to never show the father. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a wake uh, sort of like a remembrance day scene, and you'll notice that we, there is no coverage of the father. It's all told from her perspective, and you just hear his disembodied voice. Um, when we're in the kitchen, yeah, we used focus and we used a, a shallow depth of field to push the father further away, and we never saw his face. You don't actually meet the father until about halfway through the film. Yeah, and so yeah. This, this kind of like philosophy of saying, you know what, their relationship is is estranged. Like they've obviously gone through this traumatic experience where the mother has committed suicide and this disconnect between them is strong and we wanted to visually amplify that feeling. And these were a couple of devices and decisions that we made to just say, yep, we're not covering it. We're not shooting, we're, we're not gonna shoot the father in this. We're not gonna get a close up. We're not gonna, yeah, this is it. This is the shot moving on. And I think that was, really exciting to go really like <laughs> great like okay let's let's you know let's be consistent in this approach and and really stick to what we believe is is the way to go so that's just one example of many where i think we were often you know being quite decisive about you know coverage ideas because we felt as a compositionally or from a a lighting perspective that we didn't need to go any further like we had told the story so it was that was kind of interesting to work in the in that kind of in those conditions did your editor brain look at that and go like, yeah, that'll work? Or were you ever like, eh, we should oh, cover our asses? I, I think, I think you know what, like my editor brain would, would always kick in. And I think, you know, we, there was a lot of times where, you know, we did push back on the boys and we'd say, you know, I think, you know, maybe we need a little bit of sort of insurance here. And the producers would often, often say that it, it became actually more a debate about close-ups and when to use them and when when to get them and I think my editor background would always tell me to sort of think about entries and exits to scenes and how do we get from here to there and and often I would be suggesting or discussing that but the boys were also editors as well so we were always sort of talking about it and and to be honest one of the really great things was the boys would actually go and edit the day's rushes that night and oh my bring god it the how do you day. have that much it, energy how, how can you it, do it, that it, it, oh. Honestly, like the lack of sleep, you know, was was the thing that I, I could never understand. And the main t- the, the the way they were able to maintain their energy and positive vibe, they'd come to set every day, music blasting, happy, like super excited because they'd cut the day before. They'd, they'd you know, like cut a little assembly for themselves and they'd go and look, it works. Like, you know, we got it all. Also, you know, occasionally we'd be like, we, we're really missing a piece like this, this piece we need to get. And that was really helpful because that doesn't often happen. And so that sort of like conversation about edit was always happening. And I was able to play a big role in that as well, just because we were able to speak about how a scene would feel. I'd watch these little edits and I'd make my notes and comments and say, oh, look, you know, I think maybe we do need to go back and get this little angle or this little pickup here. And so that was really uh, a fun process to be part of because it's very, very rare that that happens. And before before we move off of uh, talk to me, can you tell me sort of about your lighting philosophy, your approach to the lighting? Was there an arc to it? 
Like, did it start off lit one way and then go another way? You did, was there a lighting complement to the possession scenes? That Were those lit differently? Or the makeup on people was a little different during those scenes? Yeah, I think in early pre, we spoke about what this world looks like. You know, there was a lot of discussion about where do we sit? You know, when I was even testing lenses and cameras and just trying to decide, like, what is our package for this you know project? Like... The boys would often reference films of realism, very sort of day in the life dramas where the horror will be, you know, something that is is quite shocking because it's you're bedded into sort of this naturalism, this world that feels real. And then obviously when something goes wrong, it's a lot more shocking. So I think from a lighting perspective, you know, I often move more towards a naturalistic thing and and, and I really work with production design um, to understand the sort of quality of light the density of light, the color. And so working with Bethany Ryan, the production designer on how practically led this film was gonna be, knowing that I'd have to shoot 360 was a big part of pre and understanding what Mia's world felt like. And we sort of discussed the different sort of practical fittings and fluorescence and, and this sort of greenish blue color that would come through in her house because it felt disconnected and she was sickly. And this idea that at the start of the film, she had a cold and that these she, her immunity hmm. was down and that the spirits were actually getting into her because she was sick and wet. And there was a sort of stickiness to, to that, to that world. And so we worked, uh, you know, in terms of like lighting and skin and what that felt like in her world. And we tested various things versus going into, you know, sort of the more warmer, inviting tungsten uh, lit world that when she goes over to her friend's house, you know, she feels more at home. And that was a sort of a lighting approach that we took there so that it sort of felt warm and inviting. And that when when you see the two worlds in contrast, you kind of understand where she's coming from, where she, why she's why she wants connection with this family and why she feels so estranged from this world and she wants this. And then also, you know, like when the possession scenes occur, how I was going to introduce unmotivated lighting to elevate again. So you would, you know, when people were being possessed, I would introduce accents of lights that necessarily weren't there, slight color Mm. variations that weren't there, just to sort of lift you out of reality for a second so that I could dump you back in. And so that that was a a lot of sort of the discussion about how I would sort of find and motivate those lights. Um, You know, I, I know in the second position, I was really excited about the fish tank because the fish tank you know, the tones in the room were very warm and sort of magentary and, and almost yellowish, but I needed this cool justification so I could add add those accents of cool light. So this fish tank, which the production designer had, you know, designed into the space, gave me that motivation. So I was able to use the space as a, to inform my lighting approach. And as the film, as Mia's psychological decay, you know, like, you know, as her unraveling occurs throughout the film, you know, the lighting slowly becomes slightly more uh, darker. There's a slight shift in color. We slowly desaturated the film as it goes along. Just to sort of, you know, it's very subtle. Nothing's are you doing that with lighting or are you doing that in the grade? I, I, that was a grade thing, to be honest. Like that, that lighting, because, of, you know, as the film sort of goes towards the end, it becomes a lot more sort of, we're in the hospital, we're outside. We also chose to do sort of one of the sort of most intense scenes in the daytime, which I thought was, I always struggled with. I always was like, 
how are we going to make this this prosthetic look good in the daytime? Because, uh, you know, often to your eye, it, it, everything works better in shadows and, and sort of, you know, like shape, shaping that and, and sort of hiding any imperfections. But with full respect for the MEG, the makeup effects group that did the prosthetics, it looked so real um, that, mm. uh, you know, shooting it in the daytime was not a problem. Um, I, it, it sort of it was just incredible the work that they did. So to sort of sum up the lighting approach, it was subtle. It, it was definitely motivated by the naturalism. And then I added accents of sort of when we were going through possessions of sort of fear and then the grade, there was a slight desaturation that occurred throughout the film to sort of suggest the life is leaving her. She's, she's really losing her mind and she's mm. sort of being led down a path that she's, she's being propelled to this, to this conclusion that, you know, she needs to do what she does, but yeah. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you and your career leading up to this. I always want to know, like, what was the moment in your life where it occurred to you that cinematography was a job and it was a job you would want? So I think, you know, like it, it, the, the fast track version of me is I was born in Australia. My father worked in public relations and he started a small arm of his company in Indonesia. I moved to Indonesia. Oh, wow. um, I grew up, yeah, I grew up as an international student. Um, I was heavily influenced by sort of American culture and American schooling system. And I actually fell in love with photography when I was in Indonesia. And I was, you know, uh, there was a photography class that I did. And, and sort of, you know, from there, I, I found a videography class that I did. And I f fell in love with with image making. And so when I went to university, I was obviously seeking a film school. I looked at America and my parents were like, ah, like that's going to be too expensive uh, as an international student. We're going to have to, you're going to have to go home, which, you know, was, was, a, was a good option. I, I wanted to go to AFTERS, which is the Australian film television radio school, but sadly it was only postgraduate. So I mm. enrolled in a university close by which was, which was Macquarie University. I did like a media degree, but it was also I sort of focused on anthropology just because I'd grown up as a, you know, in a, in a Muslim culture and, and I'd always been really fascinated by cultural comparisons. And, and I, I thought at that point, you know, like documentarian sort of photojournalism was sort of the world I would head into. And after sort of finishing university, I had a really good network of film friends and, and um, anthropological film just wasn't the world I thought it was. It, it's not documentary. It's very different. It's academic. I got a job as an as a junior editor at a production company, just sort of you know because I had this passion to get into filmmaking and I couldn't figure out a way in. And I was trained as an editor, so that's sort of where I began. And through this company, I sort of grew a, a bit of a sort of a network, and I learned about editing, and I was you know cutting little commercials and, and different things, and meeting directors and and watching sort of that system work. And it it, it sort of wasn't until a few years of doing that that I was sort of promoted to directing and I was suddenly directing commercials and you know directing shooting and editing things just because at that time digital revolution was happening and I could suddenly get my hands on a camera and I sort of got to this point maybe in my early 20s where I thought ah, you know this I still don't feel right I'm not completely in love with this path I still wanted to I was shooting music videos and short films with my friends and it just nothing was feeling right and I actually moved to New York City. Obviously, growing up in Indonesia, a lot of my friends were Americans. So one mm. of my best friends was living in New York at the time. And I just thought, what better time, you know, if I'm, I'm going to go and I'm just going to go to this city, I'm just going to, you know, immerse myself and sort of see if I could figure out exactly, you know, which direction I wanted to go. And I met a producer who was actually a neighbor of mine. I was living in the Lower East Side and she was producing 
like short music videos or short films. And she got me to work on uh, one of her short film sets, you know, in the lighting department. And I got chatting with the DP and I just became fascinated by sort of the approach that he had and his philosophy. And I think it, it all became clear to me that, that that's sort of the direction I wanted to go, that I was, I'm a storyteller. But I, in my own projects, in my own things, I, I was always leaning towards the visuals and I was always spending more time really articulating the visuals and, and less sort of like, you know, really working with the actors. And, do, you know, mm. I, I, it became very clear to me that I wanted to go back to the original roots of what got me inspired to be part of this, which was photography and, and image making. And, and I left New York and I came home and I went, I'm making a complete career shift. I'm going to do it. I started doing little camera assisting jobs here and there, which didn't work out very well because I, I never found myself. I, I wanted more, uh, you know, I wanted to be in front of the, I wanted to be making decisions. And, you know, because of my network and it wasn't until I'd shot a music video with these, you know, ironically, these YouTubers called the Bondi Hipsters, mm-hmm. um, who were at the time quite successful and they had just gotten a television series off the ground for a local ABC sort of network show. And they're in their second season and their DP had decided to move on and they're looking for someone. And I just shot a music video with them and they thought, God, Aaron would be good for this. But obviously the completion guarantors, the insurance companies were like, ah, we're not like, who is this guy? Like, you know, there's no way. So the boys actually petitioned for me to be the DP and through a a bit of sort of a a process of of pitching, you know, why I would do well and the sort of sanctions they would place on me just in case I wasn't performing and they needed to fire me. um, (laughs) That was all, that was was pretty exciting. So suddenly I I, I was given this opportunity. Yeah, that's a a huge leap right there. That's that's huge, huge. A jump into the fire. Um, And, you know, I found myself on set, you know, with a cast and crew and, Everyone's looking at me going, what the f- are we doing? Like, you know, yeah. you're the boss. You tell us where to go. I was working with operators and gaffers and, you know, it was like, okay, here we go. Like, and, you know, I, I you know. How, I, how long did I it think, take you to get used to that level of production? Oh, look, you know, I'm still getting used to it. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I think, I, I, I think that. It's my natural space. Like I love to be the decision maker. And I, as long as you were decisive and clear about your decision making, whether it be right or wrong, I think people, you know, like it, t- it, t- it takes a while, right? Because people would always look at me, who's this young guy who, who hasn't done anything? Like he's making mistakes. But I, you know, I just had an openness to me and, and sort of like a, a humbleness that, you know, it definitely, I didn't want to be taken advantage of, but I, I and I was clear but I think that it took me a little while to sort of realize that I didn't need to be as open to suggestions all the time. That was sort of a, a process of learning that I, you know, I, I was able to close myself off a little bit to sort of be more decisive. But I think as, as I've in my career have gone on to various scale of project, you know, there's a different there's a different Aaron that needs to sort of, you know, be applied to the different projects, I guess. Mm. So just curious, in the wake of Talk To Me, yeah. like, you know, because it's kind of a sleeper hit around the world. Does your phone start ringing off the hook? Do you start getting a lot of offers? Has, has it changed your life? Or like I always talk to people, it's like, yeah, they shot the film at one Sundance and nothing really changed at, at that time. Like, what's the what difference has it made in your life? Look, I think, you know, for me, it's made a huge difference in the sense of doors opening up and conversations mm. that I'm now having. Obviously, the writer's strike 
it's a double-edged sword, right? It's it's like a lot of projects are on pause and, and we're waiting for that to be resolved. And I'm in full support of the strike and believe that hopefully that, you know, we, we come out with better conditions for all. But I believe that in the strike, it means that a lot of people are probably more available to talk to some, you know, unknown Australian <laughs> DP. So that has been a positive. I've seen quite a few scripts come to me. There's a slight feeling of um, as time passes, I feel like, you know, Talk To Me's success is like kind of mind blowing. Uh, to, to, I think it was only a few days ago that it was announced that it's the, the highest grossing A24 horror film ever. It's just past hereditary. Um, yeah, yeah, I read that too. So incredible. So to be sort of put in that in, in that same conversation is mind blowing. And, you know, being back in Sydney and sort of reading all this press and, and it's, it's quite surreal because, you know, you're like, it's this little film that we shot is now just everywhere. And I'm getting a lot of like, I'm getting a lot of people reaching out and, and asking questions and, and sort of, you know, through Instagram and different social channels. That, like that just was how I reached <laughs> Yeah, like it's, it's really, it's been really interesting to sort of see uh, the reception in different countries and, and different people. So it's, it's definitely been a huge boost to my career. I think it's got a little bit more attention than I would have ever expected. So it's helped me to sort of start to speak to people. Has it led on to directly to a project? No, I, I, not yet. Uh, I think the timing is probably not great back end of this year and, and um, next year, there'll be some really interesting projects for me to dive into. That's the hope, uh, you know, because, yeah, I'm just keen to keep going, um, keep building. Cool. So um, that I, I feel like I've used up enough of your time here. Uh, before we go, could you tell people where they can find you online if they want to see your work, if they want to interact with you? Yeah, if you, if you want to hit me up, um, you can find me on Instagram, Aaron McCluskey. And uh, you can go to my website to see my work, AaronMcCluskey.com. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Aaron, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Can't wait to see what you do next. And congratulations for everything that happened uh, and is continuing to happen with Talk To Me. Thank you so much. All right. So that was Aaron McCliskey. I uh, cannot wait to see what he does next. Also, cannot wait to see what the directors of Talk To Me do next. Oh, my God. Hey, Ben, uh, here's one more of those fake auction things you you might appreciate. Uh, Hannah Waddington of uh, Game of Thrones uh, will follow around a person of your choosing shouting shame. That's fake. Yeah, <laughs> it is fake. It, but, you know, it, I think it would be great. It would be that, great if that, that was would be great. That would be yeah. perfect. <laughs> uh, all right. So, hey, uh, Ben, it's time to pay the bills. All right. Uh, we got to thank our fine friends over at Aperture, makers of high quality lights. They are having a moment right now. Uh, Aperture went out and bought themselves another company. Which oh, no. I don't know if, yeah, what company? Oh, 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 yes. It's a company called Prolite. Prolite was uh, spelled a little bit funny. It was spelled in a sort of German spelling of uh, L-Y-C-H-T, the, for the mm. light part of it. But Prolite had made a lot of waves in a very short period of time, bringing the first really popular RGB ACL system to the industry. Prolite came out with this relatively affordable, very high quality light engine that makes all of the different colors without using any white light at all, but they use hmm. them mixed to make white. And boy, did they really capture the imagination and were really kind of going places and found very quick adoption on the high end. And at Hot Rod, we had several clients who were getting rid of tungsten lights. They were completely changing out the lights on their trucks and putting in pro light. Well, Aperture said, we want some of that. 
and they bought them out. And uh, they just were at IBC and they made a couple of new announcements, how they're kind of fusing ProLite's peanut butter with their chocolate. And they've got, you know, new light engine technology and some of their their own magic all working together now to create uh, new products. And, you know, we will see. But one of the first things they announced was that all ProLite lights, of which there's two very popular ones called the 300 and the 675, they had their own wireless app system. Well, they're going to get an update, a firmware update, and now they're all going to be compatible with Aperture's Citus Link. And Citus Link has already become very, very popular out there. And it's sort of a alternative system to wireless DMX. People can mm. use their phone to control the lights. And so now anyone with ProLite can have their lights work, or very shortly, as soon as the firmware is released, uh, work seamlessly with Aperture lights. And that's all kind of a very cool, fun, new thing that Aperture is bringing to the community. They purchase this company, but rather than, than leaving all the people who had invested in those lights behind, they have a firmware update so that they're going to be able to take their old lights and make them work with new lights and continue in the new Citus Link ecosystem, which I think is really cool. They, they, they really did something fun here and uh, good on them for looking out for ProLite customers because uh, they had a lot of them and there's a lot of people out there really enthusiastic about ProLite products. I know that there's still some left over at Hot Rod Cameras and you can get some really good deals right now on ProLite stuff because uh, they're effectively going to be discontinued. So we have some really amazing deals on ProLite 675s and 300s, which are mm. the flagship lights. So if you're in the sound of my voice and you're interested in ProLite and you never picked it up and you'd like, and you always thought to yourself, God, I really wish ProLite lights worked with Aperture's Citus Link. Well, uh, wonder no longer. <laughs> According to the president of uh, Aperture USA, Ted Sim, it was announced two days ago at IBC, so it should be coming out quite soon. That's awesome. And now, short ends. So, so Ben, it is our short end time of the show. Uh, what is your obsession this week? What are you all about? Well, kind of a twofer here. The first one, and I'd say the main one, is my friend Ed Sanchez, who we've threatened to have on the show more than once. We uh, should just do it. We should just make it happen. We should. I should just call him up yeah. and say, hey, Ed, get on the goddamn show. Um, Send him a, an Instagram message. He, I, I, yeah, I could, or I could uh, text him. He is part of an anthology horror film that I have not seen yet, in all, in all fairness. I'm going to probably go see it tomorrow night. It's in theaters in some cities, and it's going to be streaming everywhere, called Satanic Hispanics. It's a, an anthology film of like four or five stories, and Ed uh, directed one of them, Mike Mendez, who directed a movie I love called Big Ass Spider. Mike Mendez directed one of them. Damian Rugna, who did Terrified, not to be confused mm -hmm. with Terrifier, but Terrified from Argentina, one of the scariest movies I've seen in years. Just love it. Anyway, it's like the lineup of filmmakers in, in this is pretty amazing. The There's only two credited DPs on IMDb. I don't know if they just rotated through all of them or if everyone brought on their own DP and they're just not on IMDb yet. But we've got Luke Bramley and Matthias Schubert are the, the two credited DPs. But anyway, I just want to say, if you have a chance and you want to see a cool indie film, it, it's a good kickoff for spooky season. We're, we're, we're moving into, uh, into Halloween season, and uh, I'm definitely very excited to see it. Not just because my friend was one of the directors, but in general, I think it's, uh, it looks cool. So the other thing that I wanted to bring up was there was all this enormous black magic uh, news this week. You would know more about the cameras, but actually it was Kay's who was telling me about it. And they have a camera app for your iPhone that gives you full professional controls on your iPhone. And I downloaded it and I kicked the tires with it a little bit. And I would say of I've messed with a few apps that are kind of 
quasi pro camera apps for your iPhone. And I would say by far, this is the easiest one to use with the fewest buried menus. Cause like when you're, if you're trying to get pro features out of an iPhone, which is kind of an, an oxymoron anyway, but if you're trying to get pro features out of an iPhone, what you don't want to do is you're probably not making a feature film on it. You're probably filming your kid's soccer game. You don't want to get lost in menus. You want to just be able to access whatever you want. But it gives you shutter control and it gives you ISO control and it gives you speed control and all kinds of cool stuff. Definitely worth checking out. And it's free, by the way. Did I mention it's free? It's free. If you have an iPhone, you can download it. You you, you risk nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm very much actually looking forward to that myself as soon as they come out with an Android version because I'm not on an iPhone. But yeah, the, yeah. Uh, but I got to say, they did include the very cool feature uh, originated, to my knowledge, by uh, Thomas Worth of VHS Cam fame, where you can hold your camera vertically, but you'll record a slice out of the sensor to have a horizontal view. Ooh, so, so I haven't, I haven't seen get, that. You can get a 16 by 9 while holding your camera in the 9 by 16 method, which I think is mm. really cool. And yes, I, I very much would like that because I think that that's a, a great way to uh, to be able to do stuff, especially since there's plenty of resolution now in a lot of these cameras and probably having, uh, and by cameras, I mean the cameras inside your phone and having a slice like that probably would have a certain patina. Might not actually look quite nice. So we'll I, I got to say, actually, like uh, on a more than one professional job, having an iPhone has saved my ass where I was able to get a shot with the iPhone that I could not get with the real camera. And uh, and it made the cut, <laughs> you know, and no one complained. One time I had the client be like, is that just your iPhone? And I'm like, yeah, look at the shot though. It looks cool, right? You know, and... Yeah, and, and I think that that new uh, Blackmagic app is only going to have more people doing that sort of thing now. And I think that it's uh, it, it's awesome that they they made such a thing. I can't wait to play with it once it reaches the the other, you know, 70%. The dark side. Of, uh, Enjoy yeah. your Android phone. Anyway, Ilya, Thanks. what's uh, what what is your short end now that I've monopolized the world and brought up two? Well, I got another article. It's actually from July of this year. Somehow I missed it and just found it today. Uh, it's an article about Ben Affleck in Film and Digital Times, which you know, Film and Digital Times, uh, run by a friend of mine, uh, John Fowler. He uh, puts together sort of this trade publication for the technical side of the industry. And what was random to me is you don't usually see, you know, actors inside of there, but Ben Affleck. Well, he's discussed... also an Oscar winning director. I mean, like just side note, Ben Affleck, you know, directed a movie that won Best Picture. Of course, but you don't have those people typically in film and digital times. My okay. whole point is, is that he was there discussing shooting air, shooting D camera on air, and he gets into it with John Fowler and he talks about lenses and cameras. And it turns out Ben Affleck, big camera and lens nerd, which mm. uh, I would not have expected. And when you get through the whole article down near the bottom, basically John Fowler calls him out. And it's like, you're, you know, you're kind of a, you know, uh, a member of our, our camera and lens geek society. And Ben Affleck says, man, I get made fun of it. It's a very serious addiction. And he lists the different lenses that he has, including like a set of Canon K35s, a set of Zeiss Ultra Primes and Super Speeds, some Airy Fujinon Allura Zooms, and some crazy Russian lenses he bought off of eBay, which is like, that is not a hobbyist. He's got, uh, you yeah. know, a red V-Raptor 8K. He's got, you know, uh, an, an Ingenue Optimo 28 to 76 Zoom. The guy is like, the guy's, you know, seriously got a, you know, a gear addiction. And I think that that's pretty awesome. That, that's you know, way, way more interesting than he buys expensive cars, although he probably does that. That too. 
you know, he actually does mention that it's kind of a secret that owning this gear, he gets to rent it back to the production and make money on his investment, oh, which is what course. a lot of people do. So uh, I think I think it's wonderful. It just it was it was really unexpected for me to see Ben Affleck here talking about air on film and digital times and then talking about he's a lens geek and a camera geek. And uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to read the film and digital times article. And uh, it, it's a lot of fun. So, hey, uh, you know, there there are some people out there who are maybe slightly more well known to be into the like the, you know the technical side of things but Ben Affleck was a surprise for me I did not I did not know that at all I mean I, it is a surprise to me and then again you know given that he is an Oscar winning director like you know he's he obviously knows what he's talking about in that realm but oh. but also like how many Oscar winning directors would have that many lenses of their own probably none. how many Oscar winning directors would just trust someone else that like that's their thing and they don't necessarily want to be shooting you know a d camera or c camera or, or whatever it is they they want to concentrate on what they're doing but clearly you know ben's can bifurcate his brain in that way where he can operate a camera and direct and that's that's amazing that's impressive i think it's cool yeah it's very cool i i'd, I'd love to talk to him about it sometime that'd be great let's get him on the show <sighs> alana you've got your work cut out for you if you're hearing my voice so you know, it might, it might be a tough get. I don't know. He might not be that hard. <laughs> how many people, know. how many people call him up and want to talk about lenses and cinematography? I bet it's I, not that many. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to find out. So Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for us. Who do we have to thank this week? Uh, let's start by thanking Alana Cody for uh, lining up all these kick-ass interviews. We got, we got more coming. Uh, let's thank Ben Katz for uh, making us sound uh, halfway cogent, I would say. Hopefully. Halfway. Hopefully yeah, we didn't make his job too hard this week. I don't, I don't think it was especially bad this week. And uh, lastly, but never least, let's thank our good friend, Kaze Alatrachi, who I'm going to try and rope into going to see Satanic Hispanics with me, by the way. Him and Zuby Mohammed and I have, like, uh, we, we go see movies at like 10 o'clock at night now and just fight to stay awake. But let's thank Kaze. He composed every scrap of music you've heard in the entire show. Listen to his music, musicbykaze.com. Hire him to compose a new score for you or color correct your film or do CGI or direct your goddamn film. He can do all of those things. Uh, he certainly can. Without a doubt. So that about wraps us up. Oh, uh, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, and you can find me at benrock.com. And I'm not going to say all the same stuff I say every week. Ilya, take us out. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listener.